Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. It's a special three-man booth today at Baseball America's World Headquarters here in Durham, North Carolina. I am John Manuel, joined by Ben Badler and Matt Eddy. We're three-fourths of the crew that brought you our prospect rankings by position uh, we're pretty happy with it, uh, put a lot of work into it, and think it turned out well. And uh, we're glad that you can join us here on the podcast. If you have questions for us, we're going to start our regular podcast schedule again next week, and that's podcast at baseballamerica.com. We've got several questions in the queue. won't get to them in this podcast. We have a lot of ground to cover, but we will start answering those again next week on the Baseball America podcast. We'll jump right in. We had the, uh, the two of these guys who podcast on the pitchers yesterday. We'll jump right into the position players with the news this week. Uh, involves one of the guys ranked in here, and that's Brett Lowry. First-round pick of the Brewers last year. Canadian joker who's already moved from being drafted as a catcher slash infielder. I think we thought he'd be more of a third-base projection. Now he's moving to second base, which was primarily his position as an amateur on the Canadian national team. And, and guys, I think we all, and this is the first time you guys have been heavily involved in the top 100 prospects ranking. Um, I, I think... Everyone had a little bit different take on going into Brett Lowry and how we regarded him ranking him in the top 100. And I probably had the most firsthand or I guess secondhand information on him having done Canada for the draft, having written a feature on Brett Lowry last year. And I, you know, I believed in him as a catcher, but I also had talked to scouts who were skeptical about him and uh, used words like maybe he doesn't have the temperament for it, the bat's almost too good. I ranked him in the top 100 based on the bat, uh, almost 100% on the bat. And boy, he would have really jumped up uh, my rankings if I really was convinced he'd catch. Um, how, how did you How did you guys factor in the position factor, and how much do you maybe think him being a second baseman affects him going forward as a prospect? Well, I think uh, you know you talked about you know he he didn't maybe didn't have the temperament for it. Something that scouts talked about, and you know when I was talking to uh, you know I talked to a few catching instructors and and guys like AJ Hinch, farm mm-hmm. directors, and, and Scott Service, who you know former catchers, and uh, you know one thing that they did bring up a lot regarding whether or not a catcher is going to stick behind the plate is, you know, his desire to, to, to want to catch. Uh, it's not a fun position to, you know, to go back there and take a beating every time, you know, every game, all the, all the foul tips you're taking every time. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily reflect on, you know, Lowry and on his makeup necessarily, but he just didn't, uh, it seems like maybe he, he thought he'd be better off playing second base rather than, uh, you know, grinding it out at a catcher every day. Uh, so I think w- when I looked at Lowry before, uh, you know, a couple days ago, before we knew that he was going to move off of the catcher, you know, I think I just weighed the uncertainty of, you know, there are questions about he might move off, t- uh, he, that he might move off of catcher in the future. Uh, so you kind of weigh that uncertainty of not knowing uh, whether a guy's going to hold up catching, how he's going to do over a, 
you know, a full 140 game season. You know, a year later, uh, maybe in 2000, at the end of the 2009 season, you you reflect and and reassess. Uh, I think there's enough belief in the bat around here and right. among, among scouting circles that that's going to carry him uh, to the big leagues. But in terms of weighing his, uh, you know, his, his potential as a catcher, you kind of have to include that uncertainty of of whether or not he's going to be able to stick behind the plate or maybe move to to second or third base in the future. And Matt, you sound like you were almost. Uh... You know, feel like you've almost put too much stock. Almost regret that you put a little too much stock in him as a catcher, but mm-hmm. he's still certainly quite a prospect. Uh, I think the Brewers yeah. probably drafted him anyway, thinking this might be a potential uh, thing down the road. Yeah, and you mentioned the Brewers and, and their track record just with hitters in general. And yeah, they, and they thought this guy was the 14th best amateur available last year, or yeah. 16, 14th or 16th, I forget which. But right, pretty good. You know, he's a physical player, maybe a bit raw because of his competition, but somebody who the Brewers believed in offensively. And I almost wonder, maybe to wrap this up a little bit on Brett Lowry, I almost wonder how much easier it is for the Brewers to accede to this with Jack Zarensic not there. I mean, if Jack were still there, would Jack have tried to talk uh, Brett Lowry into, hey, we drafted you 16th overall because we wanted you to catch. Give it a try before you give it up. I wonder if that would have happened. Uh, obviously, we're just speculating here. But the Brewers already have, you know, who, no matter who's in charge, they have a lot invested in him. So uh, at the same time, if this guy hits and lives up to maybe a more athletic Doug, Dan Ugla comp, you got a pretty good player here. So, but that catcher list, guys, we went 25 deep. Really didn't have a hard time going that deep on it. And two of the first guys we left out were guys who were first round picks in the last uh, in previous drafts, and uh, Hank Conger and Devin Mesoraco. Certainly not guys you'd write off at any extent. Is there a personal? Excuse uh, my word, my personal cheese ball. Is there a, a favorite of y'all's? A, a guy who maybe the group ranked lower that you like, or maybe a guy who you just uh, maybe have a hunch on where you feel like maybe the ceiling's not that high, but he's pretty certain. Like, I like the McHenry guy. He's at 25, Mike McHenry. I don't know that he's for sure going to – I don't think he'll ever dislodge Chris Iannetta, for example. I've had some scouts talk about that. He doesn't have a great body. Uh, you know, neither do I, but I'm not playing baseball. He he just seems like a guy who, to me, is a nice, solid backup catcher profile or guys like a 70 or 80 games a year guy. Uh, maybe not a guy who's going to be a frontline catcher for a championship team. I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain though, as I can be for a high A catcher, that he, I think he's going to get in the big leagues uh, in some kind of role, uh, and that's not bad for the 25th best catcher in the minor leagues. Uh, is there a guy for either of you guys? Uh, Matt, is there a guy who stands out for you behind the plate? Well, through a lot of your uh, convincing and, and <laughs> conveyance of scouting reports, Wilson Ramos is a guy who perhaps we have a bit too low. You know, I do like Wilson at, Ramos at number 71. Maybe that's about right, but. You could argue this guy's a top fifty guy based on the arm strength and the in the offensive upside. He's got tools and he's performed some. Uh, there, there's that question of the uh, body language for him. I remember talking to the scout last year, who early in the year just said he looked terrible in April. But he's a notorious slow starter. Uh, that's a show right there. That's a whole other pulse. How do you get a slow a guy who's a notorious slow starter to not be like that? That would be uh, he'll be a fascinating player to watch in April because that is his rep and the Twins. It's not like they're really trying to get him uh, out it's of there. It's not going to be Fort Myers this time. It's going to be New Britain. It's a little bit harder to get started in the cold in Connecticut <laughs> than it is in Florida. Ben, was there a guy in that catcher group for you? You've done a lot of work on catchers this year. Like I said, I just like my, my players who kind of don't look the part. And that uh, that would be uh, Angel Salome, one yeah. guy who, <laughs> you know, he doesn't look like he doesn't look like anyone. I don't know all. what part he looks <laughs> like. No, he looks the part of a fire plug, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's he's five foot seven. He's uh, in, incredibly strong, uh, you know, Probably 205 pounds is, you know, and he's just one of the strongest people, you know, pound for pound 
you know, out there in the game. Hey, he doesn't do anything conventionally. He's, he steps in the bucket when he swings. Uh, you'd think he could bust him away with low, you know, sliders low and away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but he, he has a hand-eye coordination. You know, his arms are short, but, you know, he gets out and he reaches the ball. I mean, there's there's no physical projection left with him. He's not going to, probably not going to hit for any more power than he already has right now. Uh, but he just has that, you know, f- kind of freakish ability to, to put the bat to the ball, you know, in spite of, you know, some of the un- unorthodox hitting mechanics he has. You know, defensively he's going to have to, you know, improve somewhat in terms of being able to throw out runners. He kind of has a bit of a longer arm action than a lot yeah. of catchers. Uh, so that kind of leads to, you know, pretty low caught stealing percentage. Guys are going to run on him. You know, the other guys, you know, the, the Brewers have, not to make this a, a Brewer-centric podcast, yeah. but Jonathan Lucroy. Very interesting uh, couple you know, of guys. You know, he, he had an outstanding year in, in A-ball and in, in low A and then in high A as well when they uh, promoted him there. So and know, those th- are two th- guys. Those guys had to be factors to me in Brett Lowry's decision. Brett Lowry probably comes to camp and it's like, holy cow, these two guys are both really good. If I want to get to the big leagues in a hurry, I better get rid of the catcher stuff. So it's a Baseball America podcast. Matt, Ben, and John all with you uh, here at BaseballAmerica.com. And let's just move on. Catcher, go from position two to position three to first base. Uh, The first base list was pretty deep. Guys supplemented quite a bit by the 2008 draft. I think we've talked about those players a lot. So maybe we won't dwell so much on those guys. Um, but I, I think the, the, the guys at the top, it was really hard to separate out that first base group. It seemed like in the top 100, they're all so bunched together. There's really not any clear separation between the Lars Andersons and the Logan Morrisons and those kind of guys. I mean, I, the guy I think, Ben, you, you got me on this guy a little bit this year. was I was always a Gabby Sanchez doubter. but He was just so steady uh, for the Mudcats this year, AA Carolina, and just seemed like a guy who's a really, I don't know if he's going to be a star, but it really wouldn't surprise me if that guy was a steady big league producer as a rookie in 2009, and he makes our list, what, at 14? I mean, uh, he barely made the list. Uh, I think it's a really solid group of guys, and it's not a one-note group of sluggers. There's not like a, a lot of Brian Dopyrix types in this list, a lot of right-right uh, where all the value's in the power. There's you know, guys like Kyle Blanks who are real hitters. Uh, Morrison and, and Lars Anderson, I think of those guys as hitters who have power. Freeman's a hitter who has power. I don't think there's a lot of sluggos in this group. I don't know if there's a guy in there, if, that's, if there's another trait of the first baseman also that stuck out to you or to you, Matt, that maybe uh, differentiates it from past first baseman groups, or if there's just a player that you guys like in there. Hmm. Oh, go ahead, though. go ahead. Uh, you mentioned Gabby, Gabby Sanchez, and, and depending on what the Royals do with their first base situation, Kyla Kayahui, who yeah. finished third in the minors in home runs and Probably first in OPS. And the Royals have like a million first base DH types for some reason. And none of them quite as good statistically as Kyla. Um, <laughs> right. Like Gabby, he's somebody who could give you 150, 160 games as a rookie and still be pretty productive based yeah. on his minor league performance. I think those are both actually interesting kind of dark horse rookie candidates. Like I, I really wouldn't be shocked if, if Kahui uh, stood out from that group in, uh, you know, in Kansas City and they have extra third basemen. They have a lot of... A lot of guys who play kind of the same position, for sure. And Ben, uh, you, you took a couple of chat questions also on uh, what we talked about, Freddie Freeman, Angel Villalona. I don't know if there's another uh, debate you want to talk about, but it seems like Freeman is a guy that, uh, that you like quite a bit. And I think it's pretty impressive for a guy like that to make the top 100 off a South Atlantic League uh, first baseman. Not a lot of South League first basemen who generally make our, our top 100. We had two or three in this list. Yeah, and if you, if you include uh, Jesus Montero, probably uh, <laughs> a right. future Sally League uh, first baseman at the major league level. Right. But yeah, I mean Freeman and, and Villalona, you know, they're both both really young guys. I mean, even Freeman for his age, you know, for his 
or his high school graduating right. class still, you know, 18 years old. He might have been the youngest player in that draft class. I don't remember. I think the Braves have talked about him either being the youngest player in that draft class or the second youngest, at least guy who signed out of high school in that draft, which is a pretty incredible second-round pick uh, who had legitimate college options. That whole, I mean, that whole league was 17, 18-year-old and, and Mike Stanton and, yeah. and Montero and Hayward. It was just it was just a tremendous league this year, and we'll look back on that one day. But, yeah, Freeman and Villalon are both very young guys. Uh, Freeman, you know, a little bit more polished approach right now, but you know, Villalona is 17. I don't know. I don't know if there's too many hitters right out there right now who are 17 and, and polished. Right. You know, if they if they are, it's uh, you know, and they and they actually do have you know major league tools. They might and, not really be 17. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I mean, those are two guys who you know I actually prefer Freeman a little bit more as as I mentioned in the chat, but you know, Villalona, you know, the ceiling is incredible. You know, for for Freeman, I think Rome. You know, we tend to look at the South Atlantic League as somewhat of more of a hitter's league, but Rome is a, a pretty difficult park to hit in. Right. I think that brought down, you know, some of Hayward's and, and Freeman's numbers this year. If, if you can even imagine them being brought down, you know, they were both They're so pretty good, good this year. They were pretty uh, good. So I think that Freeman has a you know a pretty high ceiling ahead of him. You know, we'll, we'll have to see what he does next year in Myrtle Beach. And the other guy I want to talk to both of you guys about, I, I mentioned him earlier, but uh, Kyle Blanks. This is a really unique player, Matt, and you do the Padres. But I know you're a Blanks believer. Why don't you guys talk a little bit about, uh, Matt, you can start on, you know, what is that guy, uh, well, I guess what's the future for Kyle Blanks? Is he going to be this kind of hitter where he's the hit tool is always ahead of the power tool? Or do you do you think he can tap into the, the raw power that has to be in there when you're 6'6", 270 like he is? Yeah, the Padres have maintained for the last two years that he has the most raw power in the system. And hitting, and that's not the disparitating 20 home runs in, in Wolf Stadium in Good San point. Antonio, Good point. which is a really tough park for uh, right-handed power hitters. Just ask Chad Huffman, who hit yeah. about six there in a year and a half. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, but but Blank's, Blank's entire approach is geared toward is geared toward making contact. And, um, you know, for a right-handed batter, he actually struggles against lefties, especially in the power department, because the backdoor breaking balls kind of trip him up. He's hmm. he's he's more he's more geared to see the inside pitch and react to it. And if that means hitting it out of the park, he does that. But right. for the most part, he's geared for uh, using the middle and the opposite field. That's interesting. I like a guy, and I wonder how much of this goes back to Matt. You know, and Ben. This is a guy who played in the wood bat league in junior college at Yavapai. True. He's never been a guy who goes to a four-year college and get pitched away, away, away with metal bats. It's just not what he's known, and you're, it kind of plays into point. what you're talking about with his approach. It's really I never thought of that. I've never seen him play in person. I don't know if you have been. I don't think he was in the Futures game. But what what do you think? Is this a guy who uh, is a future All Star? You think he's he's like just a, he's like Salome. He's a really unconventional. That's exactly guy. it's exactly what he is. You know, he's he's six six. I don't, I don't know what he's listed as. I he's like he's, Salome, but he's like twice as big. Yeah, and he's listed at what two seventy. I think he'd admit but, to two ninety max. <laughs> so yeah, you, you just don't see guys like that. I mean, who do you in terms of you know comparing his body type to someone? There's really a, a very limited pool of players that you can you know do that in terms of how he's going to grow and, and project off that. But you know, right now. You know, he's not a guy who's going to strike out a lot like a like a Stanton or a Chris Carter on this list, for example. That's an impressive uh, thing about him to me. So you know, you know, I already know that the the, the ability to put the bats, the ball is there, uh, and that you you have to figure that there is some power potential in there. You know, maybe once he, you know, you know, gets some certain things in his swing, you know, ironed out, uh, you know, maybe gets his swing more geared towards a, a power approach than you know contact only. You know, maybe he can sacrifice a little bit of the contact uh, to drive the ball a little bit more. Uh, you know, as he as he grows and, and reaches a you know a higher level, he is only you know 22 years old, I believe. 
so you know there, you have to believe that as he ages as well, there's going to be some more power projection left in the tank. I bet you if it was a different organization with a different big league ballpark, he would already have moved to the outfield because he's not a slug. What he runs like a seven flat, or at least he has run a seven flat. He's athletic for his size. I guess we should put it that way. He's more athletic than Adam Dunn, who has a similar <laughs> body type. There you go. <laughs> but you really can't put this guy in left field in Petco Park. I don't. I think the Padres realize that. No matter who's running the Padres and. I think right now they don't know necessarily who's owning the team, but they sort of do. But uh, I, I would imagine a different ballpark. He might be have, have been moved to the outfield already, but right now I, that team and that big league park, I don't think you can put him in the outfield. I think the lateral mobility is a, a question I, mark. I think, uh, I, I think that's hard to do in Petco to put a guy who's that big uh, out in the outfield. That's uh, a Baseball America podcast. John, Matt, and Ben uh, chewing over our position player rankings. And let's move to second base. Probably won't take us too long. I think, Ben, you made a great point in the chat uh, yesterday, or I guess earlier today, where you wrote that uh, second base is kind of an underrated position. I think it is. Um, and, you know, you look at the all-time second baseman, and we had a second baseman who won MVP in the American League this year. And, uh, Jeff Kent, who just retired this offseason, that's a Hall of Fame second baseman. There have been some pretty great players in our generation the last 20, 30 years at that position. But I don't know if there's a future Joe Morgan or Jeff Kent in this list. Maybe it's Brett Lowry. I don't know. But... Uh, I, I do know that there, there's some interesting guys, and even a guy, I like our X-Factors, actually, at second base. I think it's interesting that, like, a Reese Havens, I don't think we felt good enough about Reese Havens to plop him into our list uh, ahead of a guy like a Giovatella, giant Giovatella, who was drafted behind him, but had a really kind of a smash debut in the Midwest League, really went out and hit immediately, whereas Havens didn't play a position, we're already assuming a move from shortstop to second base. I guess another thing that stood out for me here is this is not really there's not really a Latin American flavor to this list. This is like a kind of a college heavy uh, list. Uh, Cardenas sticks out in that regard, uh, but you have Truenfell, who's not really played much second base yet, but we're projecting him at second base. But a lot of kind of college all stars on this list. I know you're a fan of Chris Coglin, uh, Ben. Is that a guy just to pick out a guy on the second base list who? Is he one of the guys who's ready on this list for a big league de- uh, debut in 2009? It didn't seem like there's maybe a rookie of the year dark horse on that list. Uh, if there is, it might be Coughlin if uh, Dan, something happens to Dan Ugly. You know, I think Coughlin could step in, you know, right now and, and play in the big leagues. You know, maybe he, he could use a little bit more seasoning in AAA, but honestly there's not really much he has to, to learn about hitting. He's, he's a very polished hitter. He's an excellent, uh, excellent strike zone recognition he hits fastballs, breaking balls. Doesn't really matter what kind of pitch you throw him. He's going to hit it if you throw it in the strike zone. You know, if it's if it's an inch or two off the plate, he's not going to swing. And that's why I think he could be a you know a high on base middle infielder. Which you, if you have that is is pretty valuable. The one thing he needs to work on right now is his defense. He's not great in the field. He's he's steady. Uh, I guess you could call it if you want to be you know nice about it. He's, he's, he's not, average. He's, yeah, he's average. He's average in the field uh, at best. But but from talking to, to scouts about him, so, you know, there's a lot of scouts who think you know he seemed to have the work ethic or the work ethic to, to make himself into a better defensive second baseman. There's a lot of guys throughout history who've who've had the work ethic to, to make themselves better you know defensive players, and and I think Coughlin you know could be one of those guys like that. Well, Ugla is a perfect example. I mean, that was a guy. That's one of the reasons why the Diamondbacks didn't protect him and mm-hmm. he's been playable, you know. And you know, I don't know how much to read into the Marlins off-season acquisition of uh, Emilio Bonifacio as well. Okay. How that factors into Coughlin's future. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a good question actually cuz uh, they they gave up some value for him. Obviously, they were getting rid of some salary there too. Uh but I also overlooked there is a little bit more Latin flavor. I think of uh Ivan DeJesus Jr. 
he's Puerto Rican. He was drafted. Mm-hmm. I don't think of him as international, but and Luis Valbuena is also a guy that the, the two of you guys and uh, have, have talked about, and that's a guy who kept moving up our list, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Eric Sogard's a guy I know you also uh, pretty familiar with from the Padres. What is it about those two guys? I mean, Valbuena seemed like he's got a chance to be a, a two-way guy, a guy who's a, an asset offensively and defensively. Yeah, and it's really in the past year that he's gained recognition for his his defensive value. You know, he's always had the good, the solid approach, but he really started to hit for power and defend the position very well in Double A this year, repeating at uh, West Ten. Uh, Sogard had a huge year in the Cal League, which a lot of a lot of batters do. A lot of guys do. The, the Padres kind of view him as a as a potential Todd Walker type of player, short up in glove, <laughs> even for somebody who's played second base for so long, and and. Very solid um, approach with doubles power from the left side. I don't know that he's going to be as good as uh, his predecessor at Arizona State. Uh, we just mentioned uh, no. Dustin Pedroia, <laughs> but I do think he has a chance to be a really solid offensive player, and uh, they could use some of those in San Diego. Yeah, They could use some solid offensive players. And third base, uh, moving around the diamond a little bit, I-, I think you guys both hit the nail on the head, and I'm not sure which one of you guys wants to start on the discussion, but it is surprising how offense first the third base list is. There's... N- you got to dig deep to get, and with Matt Dominguez as a as a guy who could be an elite defensive third baseman, and the rest of the list is full of guys who the athleticism. I think at the position, also Matt, you mentioned in the meeting. I mean, Neil Walker might be the best athlete of these guys. I mean, and, he, and his prospect star is dimmed somewhat as he's gotten a little bit exposed the, the higher he goes, and his lack of selectivity seems to be really be holding him him back offensively. But it's a kind of a startling list in terms of just the. This is a power hitters and a bat list, really, right now. Yeah, and it's remarkable, too, that even two of the 17-year-olds, Michael Almanzar and Jeffrey Marte, yeah. could both be facing moves to first base. You know, these yeah. guys are already <laughs> physically mature Latin American uh, bat-first types of, of talents. I mean, the guys at the back of the list, like Juan Francisco and Neftali uh, Soto, those are you know, those are some kind of big donkey kind of guys. Those are Those are big physical power bats, Ben. I mean, this is... How many of these guys do you think end up uh, roughly uh, in the major leagues as everyday third baseman, and how many of them end up as more kind of corner guys? Uh, I mean, David Freeze almost is like one of the better defenders on this list, and that's that's a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think he could challenge you know Dominguez for one of the you know the best defensive third baseman on our list. Uh, you know, you look throughout the the list, and I think it's it's probably something you see a, a lot of years where third base is a guy who uh, you know may- maybe it's somebody who moved off of shortstop, so. You know they are a bit more defensively inclined, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of times it's a guy who, all right, it's we, the team says, all right, we have this guy at third base, we really want him to stick here because otherwise he's going to have to move to to left field or, or first base, uh, and that's going to really limit his value. You know, just going down the list, Pedro Alvarez. There's questions about whether he's going to stick at third base. Yeah. Uh, Mike Mustakis. You know, all sorts of position questions about you know what is his best position. Already warrior. moved from short already mm-hmm. in his career. Has already moved from short. I, I think he can stay at third base. Matt Gamble. Uh, obvious, you know, defensive questions with him. Brett Wallace, uh, even Wilmer Flores, like we talked about, yeah. already some defensive posi- questions with him. Vicieto is enormous. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of him out of spring training, I but he looks like Frank him. Thomas in, yeah. a, in, a, in, a, in the White Sox uniform. He's, you know, he's an absolute, you know, monster with with you know some of the power he has. But you know, will these guys stick at third base? It's it's an underrated position, I think, in terms of the the degree of difficulty it takes to play third base. You know, you. You saw Miguel Cabrera in early in his career try to play the position. Ryan Braun try to play the position. I think it's a position that takes a lot of you know quick reflexes and athleticism, and not only that, but the the hands and the arm. There's a lot of you know different components that 
go into playing third base to make yeah. it you know difficult. You want to have a, a guy who can who can hit there, but it's 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 a difficult position to play. You know, Mike Roberts, the former North Carolina coach, Brian Roberts' dad, was in the office today, and uh, I love talking to Coach Roberts about inside baseball kind of things. And he was talking about coaching in the Cape and coaching a player. I won't go too much into detail, but he said he's an outfielder. We, we tried him at second base. He doesn't have the actions for it. And that's the thing. At third base, you're talking about a, usually a bigger guy, someone somewhat physical because you're looking for that offensive component, component, but you also need to have infield actions. And that's a hard combination to find. It's not that they don't have arm strength or they don't have quick. Like, I think Ryan Braun has the tools, but he just doesn't have infield actions. And that's why he ended up being kind of brutal over at third base. And that's, and that's what I, it's a nebulous word, and I'd love to sit down with a scout and you know, t- watch a team take infield and say, have him point out to me, that's infield actions and that's not. I think I know it when I see it, but to me that's another story I would love to do down the line uh, when I catch my breath is infield actions and what makes a guy have them and what doesn't. And I think at this third base position, that's like I, I think that Matt Gamble has all the tools to play third base and he doesn't have the actions for it. And just a natural ability to coordinate his feet, his hands, get his body pointed in the right direction and make the accurate throw. To me, that's... That's what is all encompassed by that scouting term, actions. And I think a lot of these guys have the tools for it, but they just don't have the actions to do it over 162 games. And that's the other part of what we're talking about that's underrated is that grind. Can you do that day in and day out and accept the failure of missing a few there and still bring that offensive production that's thought of at third base? It's a, I, I agree with you completely. It's a tough, tough position to play, and I think it's undersold. Uh, Baseball America podcast, I'm having so much fun doing this. This is great stuff. Uh, with uh, Ben Battler and Matt Eddy, I'm John Manuel. Our shortstop list, guys, is kind of the opposite at the top. This is a defense-first list. Uh, catcher and third base are a couple positions that we went, but there are a lot of nice bats. At shortstop, Alcid is Escobar at one, uh, Elvis Anderson at four, uh, Reed Brignac at six. I think those guys, uh, Justin Jackson at seven, you look at the top of that list, those guys are there for their gloves. They rank that highly there for that reason, whereas Gordon Beckham at uh, two. I think Tim Beckham is really more of a, we're not quite sure what kind of player he's going to be yet. You know, when B.J. Upton was drafted, there was offensive upside, but everyone thought he'd play shortstop. You know, I, when he was drafted, no one was talking about moving B.J. or not that I, not that we heard. Uh, if they were, we weren't listening to him, uh, and maybe I'm not remembering it, but I, I thought he was a glove-first shortstop when he was drafted. Um, Jason Donald, I think we like the bat there. The glove's a little fringy for shortstop. We're not quite sure where he'll end up, but uh, this is a position with a lot of defensive players. And, I mean, I don't know, if, is there a guy anywhere close to Alcides Escobar in the minor leagues defensively? Uh, maybe a guy who's not a prospect, but who is a defensive virtuoso. He might be the best defensive player uh, in the minor leagues, period, guys, I mean, I, at any position for me. Well, if you want to you know, dig deep, deep down in the minor leagues, I know Mark Thompson is probably one of the uh, the best defenders in the, the minor leagues. The uh, shortstop out of uh, Lewis Clark State? Yeah, he, uh, he's the, uh, the shortstop. He's, he was in the Indians' low A okay. uh, team this year. Uh, you know, but... You know, on this list of, of these guys that we have ranked for, for our top, you know, 15 shortstop prospects, I'd say Andrews is probably, uh, maybe not right now, he, he still has some things to do with his uh, cutting down on his errors, but in terms of his uh, defensive upside, I guess you could call it, I think that's certainly as high as, as anyone on this list just because of his range and, you know, some of the, the actions that he has and the, yeah. the things that, you know, the, the raw tools that he brings to, uh, to shortstop position. He makes things uh, kind of look easy. And I know another thing, uh, Matt, we had a little debate here with the, the two Beckhams. I was a little bit surprised, I guess, that uh, Gordon ended up in front of him. I voted him in front because I really believe in, 
in Gordon Beckham's bat. You did the Appy League rankings uh, with us. Uh, you know, what was the feedback that you got on Tim Beckham? Is he going to be a, a guy who's a, a, the glove is good enough for him at shortstop and he'll bring the offensive component? Or where do you think the consensus kind of falls on Tim Beckham right now? Yeah, people watching him at the rookie level really like the bat speed and they saw it in the physicality of Tim Beckham. You know, he, he didn't really perform very well in, in the league, but he got a little better each month. And um, for, the, for the most part, people were sold on him defensively and that the only aspect of his game they questioned was just the raw foot speed. Okay. You know, the first, the first step quick, uh, quickness was there. The requisite was there to play shortstop, but they did not uh, figure him to be a, an asset on the bases. Yeah, he's, uh, it's interesting because the Rays have <laughs> had a lot of shortstops come through over the years. And, of course, they have to go outside the organization for Jason Bartlett when they actually break through. Um, I think that they recognize what defense matters there. And, and that's what Reed Brignac is just a fascinating player and getting to see him last year at Durham like we all did. And here's a guy who two years ago was thought of as a bad first. The glove, well, we're not so sure. And now he's morphed into this, well, really, he's kind of like Jason Bartlett almost. He's like a left-handed hitting Jason Bartlett. I, I thought there was more offensive upside than the numbers showed last year. He seemed like he was really affected by going to the big leagues and struggling. He came back and swung on a lot of pitches uh, when he got back to Durham. But he's not selective anyway, Matt. I mean, where do you think uh, Reed Burtonak's bat ends up? I mean, he was a sub-300 on-base percentage guy in AAA last year. Do you think he's going to be he's going to hit enough to be a regular and more not just to be a regular but to dislodge Jason Bartlett? Yeah, judging by his doubles total actually led the league at the time of his promotion, right. I believe. Uh, you know, the shortstop who comes to mind first is Khalil Green, huh. somebody who's not especially selective but has leverage in their swing Interesting. and, can, and can, drive, can drive the baseball and play a good shortstop, maybe bring the axe up a cut above Green. Perhaps. That's a really interesting comparison, actually. I hadn't thought about those guys. I haven't linked those two the guys. The lefty-righty thing doesn't fit, but slight so, players with incredible leverage, you know. And, I mean, I believe in the bat myself. I, I think I was really impressed with Brignac's defense, too, watching mm-hmm. him in Durham last year. But I don't know if he is a guy who stood out for you. He, he was a hard guy for me to rank. I really don't know what the I don't know what to make of this guy. Like I said, his reputation has completely flipped in two years. Yeah, he's a, he's another example of a guy who's really worked himself into a, a good defensive shortstop. Uh, so I I don't think there's any more questions anymore about you know will he stay at shortstop? Now the questions are you know is he is he going to be able to get on base enough? Is he going right. to you know make too many outs uh, and really cost his team that way? Is he a top of the lineup you know, hitter potentially, or is he pretty much a bottom of the lineup guy like a Bartlett? You know, is is that big year he had? Uh, you know when he was. You know, a few years ago, was that you know, was that more indicative of his talent? Uh, is that still in there, or is that more of a you know kind of a you know just kind of an aberration year? Yeah, Cal for League him? creation, exactly. Kind of so you know, we see a lot of guys you know go through the Cal League and do that. Uh, so you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know it was either '06 or '07 where he and Longoria played together at Montgomery, and I remember thinking, boy, that's going to be the left side of the infield of two guys who can defend and bring that kind of power. I just remember thinking to myself that was going to be a foundation of future race success, and obviously Longoria is. I, th- I still think Brignac can be, but it seems like even though he's 23, you certainly wouldn't write him off, but he's kind of got to have a bounce-back year this year. That organization might say, well, we've got Barlett for the short term, we got Beckham as a number one overall pick for the long term, and, and Reed Brignac becomes kind of trade bait. So well, we're almost through with our position player, but we split the outfielders up into two spots. I think it is appropriate to, to go center field and corner outfield. And guys, uh, I'm not sure which one of those you guys want to start with, but you had already mentioned in, uh, uh, the picture that we run with this is Jason Hayward. I thought we'd start with Jason Hayward because, uh, to me, these these lists are all about uh, the upside guys. And this this corner outfield list at the top is stout. That's that top four, and, and Fernando Martinez, to me, is on the bridge of 
being elite or not. I know I don't think Dominic Brown's elite yet. I think he can be elite, but I think, you know, for me, he's more of a pro- there's projection there. He's a, like a breakout candidate for me in 2009. But that top four of Hayward, Snyder, Stanton, Laporta, that's four of the best potential impact bats in the minors any position. And we've already talked about some really impact hitters between catcher and, and third base and first base. But I think Jason Hayward's a guy that we all, all of us like. And Mike Stan's a guy that the first time through this, I had a number three. I couldn't think of who my number three prospect would be on my top 50. And I think if you're, if you're just arguing for all upside, I think he probably has the highest ceiling of any hitter in the minor leagues as far as, is there anybody else in the minor leagues who has more power-speed combination than this guy? I mean, like, I, I guess in my mind, I kind of almost liken him to a, like an Andrew Jones kind of guy. Not that kind of defender, but when the minor leagues were Andrew Jones, it seemed like he did whatever he wanted to do. Uh, that's kind of how Mike Stan seems to me. And maybe I'm a little bit too high on him. I know I'm kicking myself like crazy for never getting to Greensboro to see him last year. That was just a uh, Travis Sham mockery uh, slash I have two kids. <laughs> what, what, which of these guys sticks out the most for you guys on the excitement meter out of those top four guys? Because it's two mashers and Snyder and Laporta and two of those young, just teenage talents like Hayward and Stanton. Well, I mean, in terms of who has, you know, does anyone have more power and, and speed than Stan? I don't, I don't know if anyone has more power, period, than yeah. Stan in the entire minor leagues. And that's saying something for, you know, a kid who's 18 years old. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, for me, I, I look at Jason Hayward and I see a guy who has very, very few weaknesses. Uh, you know, he, he has good strike zone judgment. He lays off pitches outside of the zone. Uh, his, his The hit tool is there, the power. You know, Stan has, you know, at least 70 raw power. You know, he, he can hit the ball. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter. He, miss it. <laughs> yeah, he played in Greensboro, so you know that that inflates his numbers. But you know, like you mentioned, his his road numbers were so good, and, and you just see him in person hitting the ball, uh, and not just out of the park, but the, not over the fence, but just out of the entire yeah. baseball park. I think uh, the thing that separates him for me is the uh, when you talk to Stan Meek about him, the Marlins scouting director, and you talk to people. In the, I did his draft stuff in California that year. The athleticism is just so tantalizing. You know, Southern California did want him. They wanted him to play baseball, and he would have had a chance to walk on to the football team. He had to be a pretty elite-level athlete, obviously, to be recruited to play football at USC. UNLV did recruit him for football. That, that in itself doesn't mean that he's a tremendous athlete, because there are a lot of guys who get recruited for football. But I think when you have his athletic ability, and then you show the adjustments that he started to make last year, he did cut a strikeout rate in the second half. It was still high, but it was lower than it was in the first half. That's what I guess will be the key for me watching him in 2009. Can he continue to make adjustments? Because athletic ability plus aptitude equal adjustments. We know he has athleticism, Matt. We have to see him uh, start making adjustments. Whereas a guy like a Snyder is a guy, and you're very familiar with, you've been ranking him with the Blue Jays, and, and he and Laporta to me are very similar guys, and they have shown ability to make adjustments against higher-level pitching. They're not without some bumps, but they have shown that ability against double-A AA and triple-A pitching to make some adjustments. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see exactly how much of, of Snyder's well, high strikeout rate in the minors will yeah. kind of evaporate with experience against against major league pitchers, especially lefties, uh, because his hitting mechanics are sound. He has a simple, repeatable swing and just incredible strength and raw power. That's the one where you almost have to, I think with a guy like him, you have to have the faith in the scouting report, and you see the numbers, and the numbers don't lie, but again, it has to be a matter of, Okay, this guy has to keep making adjustments. You mentioned the left-handers. He really did struggle with those guys early last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we both talked to his uh, manager in New Hampshire, Gary Cathcart, about how he was coming off that elbow problem, and he was kind of like his own hitting coach during the year. And that's those are the kind of players when I see those in the scouting reports, I get excited about 
guys who do make adjustments like that. What do you guys feel like on Laporta? I saw a couple questions in the chat that Jim and I did where people thought we had him low at mm-hmm. 27. I, I don't feel like that's too low, but, I mean, I do feel like uh, I mean, he just got passed by a couple of these guys like Hayward and, and, and Stanton, and that's nothing against Matt Laporta. I almost can almost also see him more as a first baseman in the big leagues. I mean, he was a good defender at first base in college at the University of Florida, and as much as I love Ryan Garko, he's my guy, he wasn't that productive in the major leagues last year. Do you, do you see Laporta more as a corner outfielder, Matt, or do you, I mean, Ben, or do you see him more moving to first base with that system and the way that that team is set up? You know, he, he could play uh, in left field for them if need be. His, you know, obviously he didn't play in the outfield at Florida. He was a first baseman in college. Uh, the Brewers moved him out to the outfield, and I think he surprised a lot of people with the, the instincts that he showed out there and the, the quick uh, the way he was able to quickly pick up some feel for the position. Uh, that said, you know, in terms of his his ability to play the outfield, is is the, some of the raw tools out there. You know, he's not going to have a lot of range. He's not going to track down a lot of balls. Uh, he's not, you know, a, a twenty runner by any means right. on the on the twenty eighty scale. But you know, he's going to be a probably a below average defensive outfielder. You know, whereas a guy like Stanton and or Hayward, uh, you know, they're not going to play center field for you. But you know, th- those guys could be above average. Uh, corner outfielders defensively, uh, you know Laporte obviously is also you know 24 compared to you know Stanton and, and Hayward who are you know just just now uh, coming into their you know age 19 seasons and will you know both those guys could reach Double A you know in a, in a year where you know Laporte was already 23 in Double A and I know obviously Laporte was you know a college senior and you know hasn't have been able to accelerate his timetable like you know a couple of high school guys like Hayward and Stanton, uh, but I think there's you know that that you know, he's very. He's going to be limited defensively. Yeah, that's a pretty big difference uh, in the age levels there. Uh, the rest of the list that we have here, uh, you know, Andrew Lambeau is a guy I think who, to me, Lambeau, Cunningham, Weglars, that that little middle, the kind of after Dominic Brown, that seven, eight, nine. Those guys could not be uh, three more different guys. I mean, Lambeau, who's kind of learning outfield base. He was a first baseman pitcher in high school. Um, I think he accelerated his timetable kind of like you're talking about. He's not nearly as well rounded as Stanton can be or as Hayward already is. Um, but to me, like, you know, Cunningham's a really a guy who's more of a versatile guy, could be a center fielder potentially, not an A-plus center fielder, but uh, a guy who I think we really, close to the majors, we believe in the bat. And then Nick Weglars, to me, I don't know, I, I almost see Nick Weglars, I said this in the chat the other day, he's almost like junior Travis Snyder. I mean, he's he's got a chance to be a true minor league masher. Uh, and, and same thing at a, at a lower level, but a similar player to me is Jaff Decker. Uh, I know it's pronounced Jeff, but when you spell your name Jaff, I'm going to say <laughs> I'm going to call you Jaff. So uh, uh, Steve Oliveira still wants Jeff Decker on the mound, but I think the Padres uh, like him uh, like him as a hitter. Uh, those are some of the guys. I, to me, I think corner outfield. I, I'm still in the mindset. Maybe it's too much of a Mitchell Report era mindset. But I'm still thinking mashers. I think of guys like Lambo and Weglars. And Decker, those are three guys I think can really be impact middle of the lineup bats. Uh, if not three hole hitters, those, those guys could be five or six hole hitters on on championship kind of clubs. Are there other guys that you guys wanted to pull out uh, from that group? Uh, I know we're a little bit Michael Taylor and Dominic Brown. We're a little bit. Uh, those I'm, I'm surprised those two guys are as far apart as they are. To me, they're very similar players, but one went up one and one went up six in the Phillies list. But I thought the Phillies were, list was pretty much. Uh, uh, not a lot of separation in the top of their list. Uh, other guys, uh, you know, Kellen Kobaki's on this list. I think, Matt, you probably would have uh, had him on your top 20 uh, if, if you had your druthers. Uh, oh, he made it at 18. So he is 18. I missed, I missed Kellen Kobaki. 
Yeah, but somebody who maybe is flying under the radar a little bit, especially when you compare him with past rankings, past BA rankings, is, is Jose Tabata. Oh, yeah. After coming over from the Yankees in that trade, I mean, he, he hit very well for Altoona in A. Somebody who, dealing with um, hand injury issues, yeah. dealing with some disciplinary issues with Trenton. Dealing with a trade. Dealing with a trade. I, I, I think he showed himself to be still the prospect we thought he was and after you know, the trade. The craziest part about that was that his manager, uh, Tim Leeper, who's now in the Marlins organization, praised his defense in center field. Hmm. He actually thought that Tabata might stay in center field long term. Uh, we still put him at a corner spot. To me, that's a nice trait for an early career. Hey, if you can make it there and play center field. I know they have a quote-unquote gold glover in center field named McLeod, <laughs> uh, even though most defensive metrics uh, say he's not necessarily a gold glover. He, it's on my Christmas card from the Pirates that he is a gold glover. So. <laughs> he doesn't fit your master profile either. He's more of a yeah, to, feel for hitting. Yeah. yeah, he is more of a feel for hitting but, guy. Uh, ben, is there a guy on that list also for you that uh, kind of stuck out in that way? Talbot is an interesting guy to pull up. And I think Talbot, you know, the, the year Daryl Jones had really stood yeah. out to me. I think there's still some, some questions scouts have uh, about him, but you know, to go from, you know, out of the handbook in, in 2008, and if you look at, you know, his year in 2007, you can understand why. Uh, but he is an athletic guy, uh, probably not going to play center field. Uh, you know, he's probably going to be confined to, to left field, even though, he, you know, he does have some speed out there. So he'll probably be above average, you know, compared to your, your Manny Ramirez, your Adam right. Dunn out there. <laughs> right. Uh, so he'll be above average for a, a left fielder in it. You know, if, if he proves that he can continue hitting, he hit in double A, which is always a good sign when a guy starts to, to make that jump from A ball up to, to double A. You know, if he can do that consistently uh, this year, you know, he's a guy who's going to move up and if he stays in the minor leagues, be a, a top 100 guy next year. You know, at first I thought this list wasn't all that hot. Now the more I like it, the more I'm looking at it, the more I'm warming up to it. I mean, like guys like Michael Burgess and Josh Reddick down the line, those are interesting guys. And those are two guys with defensive tools and some offensive ability. They both have their rough edges offensively. Like Reddick really got exposed, I think, a little bit. His, his lack of selectivity got exposed in Double A, but a lot of people get exposed the first hundred at bats there in the Eastern League. You know, you can't really put too much into that. And Burgess, the strikeouts are are prodigious, but so is the power. So. And, and tell us about the third Phillies outfielder down here at the bottom, Zach I'm Collier. A, I'm a big Zach Collier guy. I was out of the draft last year. You know, Southern California had a crazy talent in uh, offensive players the last couple of years, and this year was outfielders Aaron Hicks, Isaac Galloway. Zach Collier, and Collier was the one to me who was the closest, the most polished bat of that group. When Hicks was thought of by a lot of guys as the pitcher this spring, he turned around, I think it was a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. might have been 94, but he hit a home run off Aaron Hicks in a game, went 4-for-4 four four in that game, three of the hits were off Hicks. Uh, that's the best arm he was going to face. Aaron going to face much better, raw, pure stuff, and he handled it very easily. Some clubs backed off him because he had a heart, uh, I don't know what the, exactly the heart uh, ailment was. I have the medical report on my laptop somewhere, but he's uh, uh, had that taken care of in 2007. He's had no problems since then. He's passed all kinds of batteries to test, and yet some clubs just weren't going to draft them based on that. So his draft stock was kind of all over the place. By the Phillies had a great 2008 draft, personally, and in my mind it really kind of starts with him because this is a polished high school bat from Southern California who, oh, by the way, is athletic. He really doesn't have a tool that's below average. He's kind of like he's not an upside of Jason Hayward, but in, in some ways, he's kind of like Hayward, and he doesn't really have a glaring weakness. And the glaring weakness is you're projecting the power. You're not seeing necessarily the raw power right now. But he got some Garrett Anderson comps, and that happens a lot in Southern California when you're a guy who plays well and has a sweet swing from the left side. Danny Dorn got a lot of Garrett Anderson comps. 
it's a two-edged sword when guys out there give you the Garrett Anderson comp because you're saying, yeah, you can swing and you can hit, and he has some versatility defensively because early career, you know, Anderson played a lot of center field. But that's also like the backside of that is maybe he's a little lackadaisical. Maybe he doesn't play with a lot of passion, a lot of fire. There's some code words when you hear scouts throw that name around, and that's one that you get with Zach Collier. But I'm a believer. I definitely think that the hard thing uh, has something to do with him falling in our rankings. Last but certainly not least, guys, in center field, I, I for one, was shocked when Kobe Rasmus wound up third in our rankings. I'm not saying he's a bad choice at three. I don't think there was an obvious choice at three. I think that's how he kind of – he was definitely the compromise guy at three. But uh, almost a little prospect fatigue with guys like Kobe Rasmus and Cameron Maven uh, uh, from 2005 draft. And Dexter Fowler is that same draft class, am I right? Uh, I know he wasn't a high draft pick. Not the first round. But he was a – four. he got first-round money, 14th-round pick. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon. So you got four guys at the top there, and then five guys with Austin Jackson, who are all high school picks out of that same draft. Kind of uh, interesting how that's happened. Um, you know, there was a little difference of opinion on some of these guys. You know, Ben, you were really high on Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, what, what, what had you rank McCutcheon? I think you ranked him the highest out of everybody in the group. Uh, what is it about McCutcheon that was that more of like a he's a Triple A? You, you're pretty positive that he's going to be a really solid hitter and a solid average big league player, maybe even a little bit a tick above that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, I like the the order we have. I'd, I'd probably bump McCutcheon up, you know, maybe one uh, spot ahead of Fowler. Uh, but, but I think I, I like McCutcheon a lot because, you know, he is going to play in the, the middle of the field. He's going to be a center fielder with, with good speed, play good defense in center field. You know, he was 21 years old. Uh, I think his on-base percentage is about 380 or so. In that neighborhood, in the, yeah. In the, in the International League. That's, that's pretty impressive for a, a center fielder to do that at, at age 21. You know, you give him a few more years, I think the power will, you know, he's not going to be, he doesn't have the big time power projection of a, a guy like Rasmus or, or Maven if he, mm-hmm. you know, Maven obviously has a bigger frame, needs to, you know, he has the, Maven has the raw power, he needs to he may make a, a few adjustments in his swing to have it start showing up in the games. Uh, but McCutcheon, I just see as a, you know, a high on base uh, center fielder with defensive value uh, who's going to drive the ball enough to, you know, maybe slug, you know, not 500 or right. 25 home runs a year. But he'll he'll slug you know in the mid four hundreds four fifty or so, and if you're doing that and that's and, pretty solid, you know, getting on base you know three sixty to three eighty or so, that's a pretty valuable player. I kind of see Austin Jackson the same way actually, uh, mm-hmm. as more a guy who there's solid tools. I think he's gonna be a solid player. I really don't see him being like a multi-time All Star that kind of thing. But I see him being a really solid regular on a championship caliber club. Uh, uh, th- those two guys are very similar to me, and they did wind up back to back. I do think I like McCutcheon better than Jackson for sure, but uh, you know, the, I think Fowler and Maben really stick out physically from these other two guys. They're taller, lankier guys where you can see them both filling out uh, physically, whereas you know, to me, McCutcheon and Jackson a little bit different physically uh, than those guys. Uh, I'm not sure. And then, of course, you have one of the harder players, I think, to rank in all this, Matt, is Jordan Schaefer. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of what you do with Jordan Schaefer. He's got a you – know, we have a track record. We have scouting reports on this guy. He was our number one 14-year-old back when we did uh, – by the ages. So, I mean, this guy's clearly not just a PED creation, but he does have that suspension for his involvement with <laughs> HGH. I mean, how did you factor that in and ranking him? And what's, you know, who are some, maybe, if it's not Schaefer, who's another guy that was maybe a tougher rank for you? Oh, well, yeah, Schaefer may head that list of, of divisive players, but right behind him are Greg Hallman and Ben Revere, two other two other players who had yeah. opinions all over the place. Great point. Regarding Schaefer, I think his second half in, in AA speaks for itself in, in his prospect status. He can hit. He can get on base. He can hit for moderate power and play center field. That's, I mean, that's a good prospect. I think he's, and the thing is, I'm surprised that the Braves have been so aggressive 
I'm trying to sign veterans for their outfield this year because I, I think they kind of have some some young guys. They're not going to win in 2009. Maybe that's just easy for me to say, I guess. But uh, uh, Garrett Anderson, Jordan Schaefer, I think I might try Jordan Schaefer out there uh, this year. And you mentioned, I think, Hallman. And, uh, again, Hallman kind of fits physically in the Mabin and Fowler group, whereas Revere is, again, a, he's not necessarily as unique as Salome or Blanks, but he's a pretty unique guy. I mean, when I was looking for comps on him the first year he signed, uh, you know, it wasn't a guy in the Twins organization, but it was under scout. He said, hey, didn't, you didn't get this from me, but offensively he reminds me a lot of Ichiro. And that's that was a pretty lofty comp. If you're going to pair someone to Ichiro, uh, he certainly doesn't have Ichiro's arm or defensive ability, but offensively he has that kind of contact ability. And to do what he did in the Midwest League, Ben, that's that's pretty <laughs> that's a pretty great start to your career. Yeah, I mean, you know, is he ever going to hit for enough power to – to have you know advanced pitchers not be able to you know exploit some of right you know exploit that and just throw them you know throw them a lot more strikes. But, is it Joey Gath right? Right, but it, you know his ability to to hit is you know amazing, and you know he's certainly exceeded a lot of expectations that people have had had of him coming out of the draft. So you have a, a center fielder who's uh, you know a top of the line runner playing good defense in center field, you know hitting the ball, spraying the ball over the field. Uh, you know that has you know that has pretty significant upside there. And th- th- there's another guy on this list. I mean, last year Dexter Fowler was well below uh, Desmond Jennings. This year Desmond Jennings is below Dexter Fowler. I think that's really like last year Fowler was coming off an injury, kind of injury plate season. This year's Desmond Jennings. I think we all none of us would be surprised if Desmond Jennings got healthy and just tore up the minor leagues this year, especially probably starting in High A and then coming to Double A. I mean, this is a guy who could go right back. I, I'm a, I wouldn't be surprised if he was in our top 10 next year in the top 100. I mean, I think it was there was reason to be cautious on him this year because it was a couple of injuries. One of them, correct me if I'm wrong, was like a back problem. Mm-hmm. Those can tend to linger. Uh, those, the, a back issue is the kind of thing that can take a tool down a grade here or there. But if he comes back, are, do you, is he a guy that y'all have faith in that if he comes back healthy, uh, could shoot right back up this list? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, for me, those are the most frustrating prospects to yeah. rank. I think when you look at all of our individual lists, uh, you know, when you rate a guy like Adam Miller or, yeah. or a Desmond Jennings or Fernando Martinez, uh, where the talent is just so obvious, but the injuries are just like, is this going to be a compounding thing going forward, or do we, you know, give him a little bit more credit, saying you know when he gets healthy, absolutely, uh, it's you know his numbers are going to return to form. So I, I think Desmond Jennings definitely could take off next year. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up just getting hurt again. Yeah, uh, I don't know what exactly is going to happen with him, but you know, I am optimistic about him going forward. Yeah, and Matt, I mean, like, this happens with pitchers, too. I mean, like, I remember Phil Hughes, I remember in the South Atlantic League chat kind of getting pilloried for it. I just wanted, I said, I just wanted to see him stay healthy. The only year he stayed healthy was the next year uh, when he ended up in Trenton and had that huge year. I guess that was 2006, was it? Where he had that just monster year in the Yankee system. That's the only year in his career he stayed healthy. And they're not all arm injuries. In fact, they're, I think he kicked the wall and hurt his toe or uh, he did this or he did that. A hamstring injury he had in the major leagues. Yeah. None of them have been arm injuries, really, or significant arm injuries. But once you start on that train where you can't stay healthy, it seems like it's really hard to stay healthy. I mean, uh, to me, how injuries and PEDs are the two hardest things to figure out. I mean, uh, with a player, I mean, like Angel Salome, that's that's in the back of my head uh, with Angel Salome, as we've brought him up uh, throughout this podcast. But uh, this list, that's an to me, it's, it's a little bit. You can have a philosophy that's a little bit easier to deal with. Like, okay, I'm going to forgive the strikeout rate on a player like Mike Stanton, maybe more than Ben Mike, because I'm really, I'm not that you don't believe in the athleticism, but I'm, I'm really going to believe that the athleticism 
We'll mix with that aptitude, and he'll make those adjustments. I know he's always going to strike out some. You'll trade that for the power, but I'm not going to, you know, with a low A play, I'm not going to let the strikeouts you know, dampen my enthusiasm. I'm going to go crazy for Mike Stanton. But um, there, there are a lot of players on this list, like a Greg Hallman. That is a that was a tough call. I mean, I, don't, I really don't know what to make of Greg Hallman. Will he adjust and make up is another issue. He's had some mm-hmm. serious makeup issues in the past, but it does seem like he's improved in that regard. He's matured. Yes, um... And, and you talk to people outside the organization, and they say that he's uh, among the best they have, if not the best. You know, you get some other votes for maybe Carlos Schumann-Fell. Right. You know, Philippe Almont when the rare occasions he's pitched. These are all guys with some off-field questions for the Mariners. I mean, Almont has had that in the past, although certainly nothing to, since he's become a pro. And then Truenfell, uh, there are age questions. There was a suspension during the year. There's position questions. uh there's some tough guys to rank, but, but you know, and to me, it's just funny that uh, Hallman, Maben, and, and Fowler, it's kind of almost like an older school center fielder, yeah. these big, taller, rangy guys. Uh, Hallman, you know, you can, if you want to dream on him, you can conjure up images of, of the Hawk. You know, yeah. the, the other Hawk, Andre Dawson. <laughs> not, not the Hawk Harrelson. <laughs> but, and, and, and they were showing some MLB TV highlights of Andre Dawson the other day. And, yeah, it was just exciting. Just that huge, violent swing. Absolutely. And, and just an early career. Arm. Exactly. I know the arm. He had. Tools that are fun to watch. To me, yeah. those are those are nineteen seventies yeah. uh, artificial surface uh, baseball tools. When you had uh, guys who had power, uh, but they didn't sacrifice speed for power. They had power, but they had it because they had quick bats. They had speed. They could do a little bit of everything. That was the game that artificial surface created. And that's one of my all-time favorite Bill James uh, articles was when he talked about the game that the artificial surface created was a great game to watch and. Uh, this was a, this the, the discussion that our list created here was a good discussion as well. So I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts, whether it's on Greg Hallman or whatever. But longish podcast, but a fun podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and because uh, I think we did. But uh, check it all out at baseballamerica.com. And again, send those email questions to us at podcast at baseballamerica.com. So for Matt Eddy and Ben Battler, I'm John Manuel. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.